If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 5. We'll get there in a little bit. Uh, I feel very fortunate. Um, I, for uh, a good chunk of my life, three of the four of my grandparents uh, were alive. And I, I got to know three of the four of them really well. One of my grandmas died when I was pretty young. I got to meet her multiple times, but, but didn't get to know her as well. Um, and, and then I think it was about 17 years ago this fall uh, that, that my, uh, my grandpa down in Texas passed away. Gramps. Gramps Goose. My last name is Goose Tree. So like every grandparent on that side, there's, it's something Goose. It's Mama Goose. It's Granny Goose. It's Mother Goose. It's my dad's Papa Goose. It's Goose, Goose, Goose. So, uh, so Gramps Goose, uh, he, uh, he died about 17 years ago, and, and we knew he was getting close. Uh, he lived in Texas. Uh, I remember I was with my, my oldest son and my wife, Lindsay. We were at the Portland Children's Museum, and I got the call from my cousin that my grandfather's probably going to die w- within the next day or so. Um, and, and he held up the phone to my grandpa's ear so that I could talk to my grandpa one last time. And, and my grandpa, I mean, it, it was the end. He, he, he really couldn't say much of anything. He made some sounds that made me think that he knew what I was saying to him. And, and I, just, I just thanked him you know, for, for being a good dad to my dad, for being a, a great, uh, or a, a good grandpa, not a great grandpa, he was my grandpa, uh, a, a good grandpa to me. And, and, and I, I just got the opportunity to say goodbye. I know a lot of times when people die, we don't, we don't get that chance. So I was, I was grateful for that. I, I just, I loved him. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, my mom's dad, uh, Grandpa Charlie, uh, died, and he was in Portland. I, I got to see Grandpa Charlie uh, all the time. So uh, I got the call that he was going into hospice, and I, I jumped in my car thinking this is probably the last time I was going to get to see Grandpa Charlie. And, and I, I remember walking into that room, seeing my grandpa, and, and he, didn't, he didn't look great, but he also didn't look horrible. Like he, um, his, his passing was actually pretty peaceful. And, and I, I sat down next to him and we talked for like the next hour or, or two. Um, we talked about all kinds of things and, and he was towards the end. So every once in a while I'd say something pretty weird. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you mean by that. Um, but, then, but then he would say some things that, that, that totally made sense. And he talked to me about about being a good dad, about being a good husband, about loving, uh, about loving my kids. He told me to take care of, uh, of, of my mom. Um, man, it was special. I mean, he, he was a firefighter in New York, and he had these just big hands, and I got to, it took both my hands just to hold one of his hands. And I got to look him in the eyes, and I gave him a hug. I, I, I didn't kiss my grandpa much, but it felt very appropriate. I kissed my grandpa on the forehead, and, and I said goodbye. And, and to be present with him that one last time, it meant the world to me. And we're all wired that way. Presence deeply matters to us, right? When, when, when you have a loved one that's, that's far away, or, or maybe they've passed, uh, photographs are great, right? It serves up memories, feelings. Uh, videos are, are really special, even audio recordings um, for, for, for loved ones that, that are still with us that are you know, across the country or even across the state. It's amazing that we have FaceTime, right? How, how great is it? Or, or Zoom or Skype or wh- whatever it is you use, but to be able to video chat. But, but what, we, what we really want, what I always want, 
is I want to be present with them. I, I want to be there with them. Well, the reason I'm talking about presence is, is because God has given us his personal presence in the Holy Spirit. He's with us. Scripture tells us he is in us for those who are, who are believers in Christ. Jesus, when he was preparing the disciples for his departure, he said this in, in John 16, 7. He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, it's to your advantage? It's to your advantage that I leave? And, and, and as you're reading that, I imagine as, as a disciple, maybe you're sitting there going, how? How can it be better that you go away, yes, you'll send the helper, and this is the Holy Spirit. How? And I know if you've been here for a while, I've probably brought up this, this passage before. We have a hard time wrapping our brains around the Holy Spirit. Ron did such a great job last week in, in teaching us about the Trinity. When we read about God the Father we know what a father is, right? Even if your father um, wasn't a part of your life very long or if your father was terrible, you, you, you know, you understand what a father is and what a father's supposed to be. So we can, uh, to some degree, you know, wrap our mind around, okay, this is, this is God the Father. And we hear Jesus is the Son, and we know what a son is. Right? We can, uh, to, to a degree, we can understand what, what that means. And certainly as we get into Scripture, it's shaped even more and more for us what it means that Jesus is the Son. And certainly we can imagine this father-son relationship. We can kind of get how, uh, how that works. But the Holy Spirit is pretty difficult for us. And some of us might be tempted to think um, not so much along the lines of Scripture and what Scripture says about the Holy Spirit, but, but maybe, maybe stories we've heard. Or I think of, I wonder about Star Wars and how that might impact what we think of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we might think that the Holy Spirit is like this impersonal force. And, and if you don't know Star Wars, the, the force is this power that's, that's kind of in and through the universe. And there's the, the, the good side of the force, there's the dark side of the force, but, but you can use it. Um, and that's not, that's not the Holy Spirit. I read a description uh, from someone that had been in the church for years and years and years, and they were talking about their, um, their difficulty in, in understanding who the Holy Spirit is, and they, they said, really, they, they kind of just imagined this, this like gray blur, right? this kind of translucent, and that's, that's the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit kind of helps us along, but and that's not how Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. That's not how the rest of Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises that he'll send the Holy Spirit, and then later in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the promised Holy Spirit. And I was thinking about what it means to make a promise. We make promises that are significant. We make promises that have value, right? You don't make a promise that is, uh, that's really lame. Like there'd be no point to that. If you were, uh, if you were trying to encourage someone to go uh, with you into the gorge on a hike, uh, you would tell them, yeah, I promise you, right, this hike is amazing. We're going to see one of the most amazing views you've ever seen. Or, or, or you'll say, I promise you, this, this, uh, this section of waterfalls, just one after another, it is going to blow your mind, right? You wouldn't say, no, I promise you, this will be the dullest hike of your life, 
Like, no, no one's ever said that before. No one will say it again. Or if you're encouraging a friend, right? You go to a restaurant with a friend and there's this dish that you like, but it's kind of, it's a little different, right? So um, like if you've been to Killer Burger on 164th, it is so good. Um, oh man. Uh, if you like a saucy burger, I should say it's good. If you don't like sauce in a burger, then you shouldn't go there. Um, but there's this burger. And, and if, if you and I ever go there, I guarantee you, I'm going to try and talk you into ordering the pic, uh, peanut butter pickle bacon burger. It is, it is good. <laughs> okay. It is, it is really good. So if I was trying to talk you into it, I, I might say, or this is exactly what I would say, actually. I would say, if you like Thai peanut sauce, that's my hook to get you in. I'd say, if you like Thai peanut sauce, I promise you will not be disappointed. I, I wouldn't promise that a dish is going to be as bland as a low-sodium saltine, right? Like, I would never, you'd never say that to someone. So a promise we promise things that have value. There's substance to them. They're significant. Jesus promises that he would send the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is repeatedly called. The, the, the promised Holy Spirit is to the advantage. It was to the advantage of the early church that the Spirit would come. It's to our advantage, too, that the Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit is God's personal presence with us. In fact, Scripture tells us dwelling in us, dwelling in those who believe in the Son, have trusted in Jesus. The coming of the Holy Spirit that we see so clearly in the book of Acts is God fulfilling the promise that he himself would again be present with his people. So back to my grandfathers on their deathbeds, and I'm thankful that I got to uh, talk with Gramps Goose before he passed that helped. But man, getting to see Grandpa Charlie, getting to be in the room with him, holding his hand, giving him a hug, giving him that one last kiss. Man, his presence meant so much to me. And even if you are a very independent person, you know that you still have that longing for the presence of, of those you love. Uh, we live in a, in a strange time with, with the internet, with our, with our smartphones. We, we, there's a myth that, um, that, w that we're more connected than ever. And in some ways, it's very true. In some ways, uh, you can make that argument that, that um, many of us, maybe most of us, maybe all of us have now connections, not just locally where we are, not just where we are from, but, but maybe even all over the world, right? We have friends on social media. Uh, you can regularly communicate with loved ones through messaging, phone calls, through FaceTime, Zoom, Skype, all those things. Um, I'm grateful. We have an app called Signal that we're connected with uh, some of our missionaries across the world, and they can, in, a, in an instant, they can send us a prayer request over the secure messaging system. Like, it, it, it is great. So in some ways, we are very connected. But people also report that they're more lonely than they've ever been right now. Uh, I heard a report uh, several weeks ago now that in the U.S., 70% uh, of the people that responded to this report said they don't have a single close friend, not even one. And obviously the last couple of years has been a part of that, but we... Man, we were made for a relationship. We we're re relational beings. We're relational creatures. And, and that longing for relationship points us to being made to have a relationship with God, right? Every relational desire we have, it's, it's pointing us to this relationship that we were made for with our creator. 
And once we trust in Christ, as Ron said last week, it's the spirit that brings us in to the fellowship with, with the Trinity and into communion with God. So Romans 5, uh, uh, 1 through 5, and, and I'm really going to zoom in on, on verse 5 here, but I want you to get uh, a bit of the context. It says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Right? It's by faith in Christ that we have peace with God our Father. And the Holy Spirit is at work in us, bringing us into communion with God. So we've been invited into this relationship of love that that Ron explained so well last week, this relationship of love that the Father has for the Son, Son has for the Father, Father has for the Spirit. I mean, it's it's all over the place. We're we're in that, right? Jesus, uh, he's praying in, in John and he says it, that, that God, the, the Father, loves us with the same love that he has for the Son. And if that wasn't in the Bible, I don't think I could believe it. But that's what the Spirit does. He, he brings us into that relationship. We have a true and tested hope that will not fail us, Paul says. Right? It's a hope that won't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Spirit. This is the relationship that we were made for. Whether you're here today or whether you know that or not today, this is what you were made for. We're relational because we were made in the image of God. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is relational, right? And there's this eternal love within the Trinity that we are invited into. I think Ron also pointed out last week that what was most painful to Jesus, the son on the cross, wasn't the the physical pain of dying on a cross, right? Which would be horrible, right? Probably beyond anything I can imagine. But no, what he cries out is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he who knew no sin became sin for us, Christ experienced the separation from the Father, Right, the, the broken, uh, we, we, we feel this, this broken relationship with the Father because of our sin. But out of God's love for us, he made us to know him personally. And we see his personal presence with his people. We, we, we find it in the very beginning of Scripture. You fast forward to the end, we see it there. And we're going to think about this theme through Scripture. And we won't be able to look at everything, obviously, but we're going to look how God is at work. And specifically, the Holy Spirit being the personal presence of God. So uh, in Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They're walking with God. This is before they choose to rebel. He's present with them. And then how does it end? What's God in Revelation, God dwelling with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. We were made to know God. But, but I don't just mean like in our heads, intellectually, uh, but, but in our hearts as well. So verse five of, of Romans five there, it says, in hope, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's, 
there's a knowing in your mind that absolutely matters, right? And, and there's, a, there's a different knowing. There's a knowing in your heart that also matters. In, in verse 5 here, Paul tells us that it's, it's by the Holy Spirit that the love of God is poured into our hearts, right? So there are historical facts that we, we need to know, right? We, we need to know and understand in our minds Christ died for us. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He's with the Father. He's preparing a place for us. We need to know, the scripture tells us, one day he's returning. He's going to gather all of his people. Right? We, need to, we need to intellectually understand. We need to know those things. And in our hearts, there's a different knowing that we need. And, and both matter. Right? But he lets us know in our hearts the love of God that the Holy Spirit has poured into us. It's a love not only understood in our minds, though it needs to be understood there, but also known and experienced. We experience this love in our hearts. So what we see in Genesis 2 is God's presence with his people, then Adam and Eve sin. So the relationship is broken, right? They chose to reject God. They, they chose to reject God's good way. They no longer knew his abiding presence. His abiding presence was withdrawn. And now death enters the reality for humanity, both physical and spiritual, right? And the worst part of hell will be eternal separation from God, right? To, to, to not have God's presence for eternity. Fast forward to Moses. He's out and about, and you know this story of the burning bush. He, he sees a bush. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. It catches its attention. He goes over to get a closer look, and God reveals himself. He says to Moses, take off those sandals. You're on holy ground. Why is the ground holy? It's because God's presence was there. And Moses, Moses knew God in a way that, that no one had known God since sin entered the picture. Moses got to talk with God face to face. Right? Nobody else got to do that. You remember Moses went up on top of the mountain the people, they couldn't even approach the mountain. They couldn't touch the mountain. They had to keep the animals away from the mountain. In Exodus 19, God makes a covenant with Israel, right? That, that he would be their God. They would be his people. He, he gives them the law, tells them, this is how you are to live. This is how you're to follow me as my people. They reply saying, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. They agree to, to the covenant. He says, follow me. I'm going to make you my treasured possession among all the nations. He says, I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. So you're going to represent God to man, man to God. You're going to be this holy nation unlike any other nation on the earth. So God's people, they had this, this visual, right, of, of God's presence on the mountain, of, of this person, Moses, going up there and, and meeting with God. But they knew that their sin was a problem. And God, over the next few chapters of Exodus, he gives them the law. And, and they, they had an understanding of God's holiness. Right, that he was unlike any of the, the nation's lowercase g gods, these false gods, these idols that they worshiped. They knew that this God was Yahweh. They knew this was the Almighty, and they knew they dare not approach him, that their sin was an offense against God, that, that they could do nothing to be able to be in God's presence because they were the offenders and God was the offended. And then something 
absolutely amazing happens. And, and, and if, you, if you read through your Bible, if you've been in church a while, this might just be old hat to us that we forget its significance. But God tells Moses to build the tabernacle. And he gives instructions in Exodus 25 through 31. The tabernacle was a, a portable temple. Right? They, they built this, this tent temple that, that, that could go with them as they were, they were going. They weren't to the promised land yet, right? So they could set it up when they were going to camp, and here's their, their portable temple. And then when, when God told them it's time to move on, they broke it down, packed it up, and they were on their way. So he gives instructions for this portable temple that, that once it was done, they'd set it up right in the middle of the Israelite camp and God's presence would be there among them. God was making a way to be in the midst of his sinful people. And, and we can easily blow over that as we read through the Bible, think through the, the story of God and his people. But imagine, imagine that, that you know God has chosen you to be his people and yet you, you, you can't be near him. You can't have his presence. There's, there's a relationship, but there's a distance. And then God gives you instructions to make this, this portable temple in Exodus 25 through 31. And, and then in chapters 35 through 39, the people, they, they start building. They start the construction of the temple. But first, something disastrous happens in Exodus 32. Moses is up on the mountain with God. The people, they grow impatient. They're like, we don't know what happened to this guy, Moses, who brought us out of Egypt. Aaron, why don't you make us something that we can worship? Make us a God. So he says, give me your gold. And he makes them a golden calf, and they worship it. The worship that only would rightly be for God, they put on this man-made golden calf. They worshiped what was false. In chapter 33, God tells Moses his presence will not go with the people. Instead, he would, he would send an angel to take them and Moses. And this is what Moses says in Exodus 33, 15. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Right? He knew there's no point. He said in verse 16, for how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses knew what it was like to have God's presence. Moses knew what it was like to not have God's presence. And God, God tells Moses, okay, I'm going to go with you. So they build the temple. And imagine, you're working on the tabernacle, right? You've got all these different people doing their parts, using their skills that God has gifted them with. You've got artisans making this tabernacle incredible, and it's going to go everywhere with you. And during the instruction, uh, the instructions and, and during the construction phase, God's presence in the temple is just a theory, right? You know God said he's going to do it, but you haven't seen it yet, right? They didn't know what it would be like. And then the day comes, the construction's done, they, they dedicate the temple, and then God's glory fills the temple, right? There's smoke, there's fire, right? The word awesome is actually completely appropriate here in this circumstance. God is in your midst as a people, and it's an echo back to pre-sin humanity. Remember God in the garden with Adam and Eve. God has made a way, again, to be present with his people. It's not the same as the garden. People aren't just like strolling into the temple, right? The law makes that very clear. There's priests now. There's all these sacrifices that have to be made on behalf of the sinful people, right? And, and that, man, you might hear that, 
and think, that's crazy. Like, why, why do these animals have to be killed? Why would there need to be sacrifices made? Well, you, you do know what it's like to offend another person, right? To, to really hurt another person. You know the shame and the guilt of that. Even if you haven't felt that for a long, long time, you know what that's like. You've felt that relational strain of, of, of offending someone else. Uh, I knew a guy, he was actually a good friend, and he uh, was unfaithful in his marriage. And, and he knew, I mean, he knew this was wrong, right? He, he, he was convicted, but, but he'd ignored it. He'd, he'd suppressed that. He'd hardened his heart towards that. Eventually, though, he's like, I gotta stop this. He ends this relationship, but for a long time, nobody knew. And, 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 then, and then some of us found out and confronted him, and he, he realized, I gotta tell my wife. So he goes and, and he confesses, and he, he confesses everything to her, more than he'd even told some of us. And, and, and it, was, it was this first step in, in trying to reconcile. And there, there's always. Uh, there's always relief in, in confession. And, and while things were in a better place, I mean, still a really, really, really hard place with his wife, he was in a better place. He, he now was feeling the, 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 the concentric circles um, outside of that relationship. He, he felt so much guilt and, and shame towards his father-in-law and his brother-in-law in particular. And, and he was gonna tell them. He wanted to confess everything to them. He's on the phone with me, he told me, that he wished his brother-in-law, once he told him, he just wished his brother-in-law would punch him right in the face. And, and, and in his own way, he, he, he knew, he, like he, he felt this need to try and pay for his offense, even though logically he knew that that payment wasn't going to fix anything. But the temple meant that God's people had God's presence with them. He'd made a way to dwell in their midst and it involved regular sacrifice, atoning for their sin. Truly amazing that God made it possible and there is still a barrier there. There's still a distance. We'll fast forward. God's people regularly rebel. Ultimately, they forfeit God's presence. If you don't know Israel's history, uh, you can just imagine a toilet being flushed and, and it just going down, down, down. It gets worse and worse and worse. And yet God is faithful in all of it. In Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel the prophet has this vision that symbolizes how far gone God's people were. And in this vision, God's glory departs from the temple. And we know that eventually the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. God's people would be exiled. Many of them carried away into captivity. They were no longer distinguished by the presence of God. And the, only, the only comparison I can think of is a spouse leaving. Right? No longer are you the husband of or the wife of so-and-so. Their, their presence is gone. And it's, and it's devastating, right? Even if, even if the marriage is bad, there's, there's all this relational pain that's Israel, no longer with God's abiding presence. But then throughout the prophets, there's this hope. There's this hope that is prophesied, the promised return of God's presence, right? I think of the, the new covenant. Jeremiah speaks of it in Jeremiah 31. Ezekiel speaks of it in, in Ezekiel 36. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start reading Ezekiel 36, 22. Um, we won't have anything on screen until we hit 25, but just listen for now. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations 
and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25 that we'll have on the screen here. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, right, the Holy Spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your, foref- uh, gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I could keep going, but I'll stop there. But Ezekiel prophesies God giving the Holy Spirit to his people. He, he prophesies what he's going to do in this, this new covenant. And the Holy Spirit marks the return of, of the presence of God. It is by the Spirit that the people of God will be able to do what they had not been able to do in their history. They will follow God, walking in his ways. They will be his people. He will be their God. I'm guessing that uh, often when we think of Old Testament promises, prophets promising the the coming of God, we think of the promised Messiah, which we should, right? We go to maybe Isaiah. We think of the, the promise of Emmanuel, which that name means God with us. And obviously, it is critical that the promised Messiah uh, came, that that he lived for us, that he died for us, that he he raised from the dead, defeating sin and death for us. Jesus makes the new covenant that, that Jeremiah talked about, that Ezekiel talked about, makes the new covenant effective for God's people by his death and resurrection. But we can't miss the importance of the Holy Spirit. It is by the Spirit that we live as the people of God in the new covenant. I do not overlook the promised coming of the Spirit, who in Jesus' words said, it is to your advantage that I leave so that the Helper can come. I'll send him when I leave, the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, a chapter later in Ezekiel 37, 14, he says, I will put my Spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I've spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. God's abiding presence early in Genesis is gone, and now God's prophets speak of a day when God's Spirit will dwell in God's people. A few verses later, verse 27, he says, My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Jesus said this in John 14, 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And and the Apostle Paul clearly believes this too. He tells us that the spirit, over and over, and he says the spirit is in us, that the the spirit is is in you. And and he tells us what we are. He tells us we're the temple, right? Ephesians 2, he tells us the church is being raised up to become this holy temple to the Lord, built up together as a dwelling for God by his spirit. The prophet said the spirit would come. Jesus ascends to the Father. Now the church is experiencing what was promised, right? We read about it in Acts. God himself is now present with his people and, and, and we find this throughout the New Testament letters, that the Spirit is in us, in you. And this, this means in our hearts. But this doesn't only refer to the individual, right? This refers to the heart of the individual believer, but also the gathered church community. 
right, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is personally present both in the individual but also in the corporate body. Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, and the church there is struggling. He reminds them that together they're God's building, that they're God's temple in Corinth. And you think about it, there are all these pagan temples in Corinth, right? All these sinful, sinful, false practices. And he's saying, you're the alternative temple, right? They're a temple unlike any other because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their midst. The Spirit dwelling in God's people isn't just good for God's people. Just like Moses said in the passage I read earlier in Exodus 33 when he talked about the, the, the people being marked off by God from all the other peoples of the earth because God's presence is with them. We're to be marked off. We're to be marked off so that the world, whether they know it or not, they can see there's an alternative to all the, the, the false temples, all the false worship in our world. People need to know about the true God. And God has all these temples walking around on two legs. All, all these temples, these local churches that, that are gathering, temples that, that have God's personal presence in them, temples that can talk about the love of Yahweh, temples that can speak, speak into the culture and, and, and say, no, th this isn't true, and, and this is. Yahweh is true. You need Jesus. Right, let's jump into Romans 8 real quick here, 8, eight 9 through 11. Paul says, You, however, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to, uh, to him. Or, or to state that positively, anyone who is in Christ has the Spirit dwelling in them. So this means the Spirit isn't just dwelling in like super Christians, right? It's not just the Apostle Paul. It's not just the, the, the missionary in India or the Bible study leader. No, the Holy Spirit, God's very presence is in every believer. Verse 10, he says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Believers, God is with you everywhere you go. There's, there's nowhere that a believer goes without God. We are his temple walking around. He's chosen to dwell in us. And this certainly has ramifications for us individually, but also corporately as, as the people of God. But we go nowhere. We don't go anywhere without God's presence. And since that is true, let's walk in step with the Spirit. And we'll get more into that this, this next week. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we are thankful for things like Matt led us in, the Nicene Creed, for um, brothers and sisters in Christ in, in times before us, that, that studied hard, that, that searched scriptures, that examined what you have taught. And, and part of that is, is helping us to understand who the Holy Spirit is. And we so often don't know what to do with the Spirit. And we make in our minds, whether we do it intentionally or not, so often make the Spirit less than the Father and the Son. God, I, I confess that, that, that I do that, that we do that. We thank you that you've given us your personal presence, Spirit. We thank you that you are, are with us, that you are in us. 
and that you, you enable us to actually follow God, that you enable us to actually follow your ways, Lord. God, I pray that we would be a people that, that live in that reality, a people that, that walk in step with the Spirit. We're, we're going to talk one more week about this, but we have a lifetime of learning to do. Lord, would you help us? Would you grow us? It's in your name we pray. Amen.